people who are going to be a little late right they're coming from boston okay uh, some are just joining us online so i'm keeping an eye out for them <clears throat> but we're just going to start right now for the people who are here this is going to be recorded so anyone who wants to watch it later uh we have an mbta zoning dedicated page on the planning and zoning website now so it all the materials will be uploaded there as long as it's um as well with this presentation so um I believe that we might have to open the meeting tonight for those boards who have a quorum. So we have uh, the select board, full select board in attendance. Uh, we have some planning board, um, zoning board, we have the chair, and we have some members from the Affordable Housing Trust. So for those members who do have a quorum, I think we can proceed and open the meeting, and then I can um, give you a brief introduction before we continue. Okay. Um, and just so everyone knows, people who will be asking, um, questions tonight or have for the Q&A section or the feedback section of the workshop, uh, you might have to come up here for the out in order for it to catch your your voice so that we can say very accurate meeting minutes. So I know it's a, a bit of a hassle, but I appreciate um, the flexibility as we try to make it work for the best of both worlds. So thank you. Yes. Um, so if yeah, if we have uh, for the words that don't have a quorum, um, Jack, you can you can get us started. Just say that. Yeah, yeah the uh, zoning board of appeals did not have a quorum. The planning board does not have a quorum. Affordable housing. We do not have a quorum. No. One short. One short. Yes. Yeah. Okay. And I still don't have anyone like. Perfect. So. Um, we can get started. Um, I'm sure that you guys have read my many emails on this. But oh, wait, 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 now I have more. Awesome. <laughs> sorry, sorry, sorry. No, no worries. Out of work. Uh, we were embarrassed. <laughs> yes, now that we have a planning for it. Do I do it? Yeah. Yep. Uh, open the planning board meeting. Uh, uh, what's the date today? October 26th. At 6.09 p.m. 6.09 p.m. Wonderful. Great. Thank you. So um, we'll get started. Uh, as I'm sure you've read from my multiple emails, uh, this is our consultant, um, Emily Ness. She's wonderful. She's going to facilitate the discussion tonight. She's going to give us an overview of everything that the law is. So what is uh, why was it passed? What's in it? What are the requirements? in general and metro specific. And we're also going to be discussing a little bit about the things that we have talked up today, but we don't wanna to get to in the weeds. We just wanna do um, like first impressions. What do you think? And just have everyone be on the same starting place because I'm gonna give you more updates as this initiative continues month by month. So you will be kept up to date on this and there'll be plenty more opportunities to weigh in. This is just, you know, workshop number one. So if, don't get too overwhelmed. Um, Emily, you want to take over? So, if you don't mind putting the um, presentation oh, back now and yeah. sharing it, I will get started with introductions. Starting with me. So, my name is Emily Ennis. 
As Maria said, I am an urban planner and designer, and I have been working with the MBTA Community Act for quite some time. Um, RKG, RKG Associates, uh, Eric Halverson from RKG Associates, is also part of a team that he could not be here tonight, he's traveling. Together, we helped develop the compliance model along with Mass Housing Partnership and with uh, HLC, formerly BHCD. Um, I also helped develop the sample zoning. Eric helped them uh, work out some of the um, uh, economic feasibility analysis. So we've been diving into this for a long time. Um, we've worked with many communities, both as early adopters, and then um, actually you all were one of the first communities that we worked with to test out the model and give a sense of where you might be for compliance. So what we're going to do today is I'm going to take you through, as Maria said, this idea of um, what the act is, what it is not, as a matter of fact, and try and get us all on the same page in terms of terminology and requirements. We've been doing this with um, boards and committees um, so that as we continue to move through the process, everybody understands the basis, um, the terminology, the types of things that we're going to be looking at. And then as we do a deep dive into each community, that community already has the tools they need to understand where they are. But before we get started on that, I would love to know who you are. And I know which committees you are all on because I heard that, but I'd love to know names. I'll try and remember all of them. It might take me a couple of meetings, but uh, maybe if you wouldn't mind going around and introducing yourself. But did you like that? Yeah. I'm Gus Murphy from the Select Board. Newton Thompson, um, Affordable Housing Trust. Ann Thompson, no relation, Affordable Housing Trust. <laughs> Jack Nicholas, Chair of the Zoning Board of Appeals. Sarah, I'm the Planning Board. I've set the Planning Board. Jim Brand, Planning Board. Andrew Sullivan, President. Great. Mark Sullivan, President. Peterson, Select Board, and I'm 30 in my other life. Great. Eileen Murphy, we're a two hat select board and for the press. Excellent. Christine Turner, I live down Perfect. Thank you. And I know we had at least one person online. So hopefully I will meet uh, Bill, Bill Macero. We see you. Hopefully we'll meet you in person at some point. So I'm going to get us started. We're going to talk about um, uh, a little bit about where we are um, in terms of the process. And we're going to introduce you to the community, MBTA Communities Act. Feel free to stop me with questions. Um, it's a lot of material. If you wait and hold your questions at the very end, you will probably have forgotten what your question is. So don't worry about interrupting me. And if you ask something that we're going to cover later in the presentation, I'll let you know. And then we'll talk a little bit about next steps. So we are here now in task two. This is the MBTA session for boards. Um, we're going to be starting work on um, drafting bylaws, figuring out comments, having community input. But we wanted to start you off with where where we are now. Um, and then there's this whole process of, as we look at the initial draft and what it might mean and its implications and changes and input from the public review and revisions, but the goal is to get everything to town meeting on May 6th. So we will be back to the planning board um, for your public hearings. We will expect to hear from all of you during this process. Um, it's a short timeline, and it's a short timeline for all of the communities, uh, many of the communities who have the December 2024 deadline um, are all going for a Maytown meeting so that we have the possibility of a fall town meeting. So you're not alone in this, but I think that's the first thing to understand. And I know that, yes. 
And were you going to send the slides around for us? Absolutely. Yes. Um, the slides have also been posted on our website. Okay. So if anyone, if any residents other than people here are interested, you can direct them to the MBTA website under the planning and zoning tab. Okay. I can help you find that if you so it's just, and you know, we also understand that meeting times and things may shift, but we do know that getting to town meeting is a hard deadline. So you understand we have that as a, a priority for us. So let's talk a little bit about the MBTA Communities Act. Um, it's also known as Section 3A. So you might hear both terms uh, thrown about interchangeably. Um, it is a new law, a relatively new law, and it established um, that each of the 177 um, cities and towns that make up the MBTA communities have to pass a zoning law that allows for multifamily use, at least one district, um, has to be permitted as a right, can't be age-restricted, must be suitable for families with children, must have a minimum gross density of 15 dwelling units per acre, and then for those communities that have a commuter rail, transit station, whatever, um, part of the district has to be located within a half mile. Um, there is a purpose to this law, and it's an important purpose, and that is that Massachusetts has a housing shortage, a huge housing shortage. Um, we also have problems with affordability, that the housing that we do have is becoming less and less attainable for many people. Um, and we are becoming at a disadvantage uh, in terms of competition with other states for um, uh, employees. Uh, there's actually um, some net migration going out of Massachusetts now because people can't afford to stay here. And that's a problem for us economically. And from a planner's perspective, placing housing near transit is good housing policy, it's good economic policy, and it's good climate policy. But really that idea that housing shortage is hurting our uh, residents, um, our families, um, our employers, our employees is huge. It is not a lot of things. Um, uh, there's been a lot of misinformation in the press. It's not a mandate to actually build housing. This is zoning. We're going to talk a little bit more about the difference between zoning and production later on. Um, it's also not a housing production target. Nobody is saying that you have been assigned this much housing and therefore you must produce this much housing. Talk about why that is as we go through. It's not restricted to affordable housing only. That's another common misperception is that it's all about affordable housing. And while it is a tool in housing and a tool in affordable housing, there are other tools that are better for affordable housing. And we'll, we'll talk about a lot of those tools. It's also not the only tool for a community. It's certainly not a one size fits all. I mentioned we'll talk about that. Um, and uh, it's not viewed as optional by the Attorney General. Um, I'll point to a letter that the Attorney General sent earlier this year later. So these are the 177 um, designated MBTA communities. For those of you who are thinking 175, which is what it was when these first came out, Fall River and New Bedford came online as MBTA communities, so they're now required to comply. Um, then these are how you know whether or not you are an MBTA community. I won't go into that. Um, Medford is an, uh, um, I'm sorry, Medfield is an adjacent community, uh, so you do have until December 31st, 2024. I was at a client the other day where somebody said, we have until December 24, and they thought they meant 
the date December 24, and that person started panicking. So you have till the year 2024. Uh, uh, and if you're a rapid transit community, which that community was, your deadline is this year, um, 2023, commuter rail and adjacent to the same. And then if you're an adjacent small town, you're 2025. Adjacent communities don't have commuter rail in them. So rapid transit is subway, commuter rail, obvious, but adjacent communities and adjacent small towns don't actually have transit stations. This is a list of implications that the town does not comply. That's been a frequent question we've had. And I like to point to the um, uh, to this side, to the, the right-hand side first, because although the list of grants is longer, I think the uh, loss of the opportunity for a town to really consider how and what how it's how, what what its housing needs are and how those housing needs can be met is critically important. And the MBTA Communities Act, because it is a requirement, provides a framework to communities to have those conversations. In some communities, those conversations have been happening for a while. In other communities, those conversations are long delayed. And they're not easy conversations to have. There's a lot that gets wrapped up into housing, um, but it's a critical conversation. And so when a town talks about its housing needs, it can talk about the affordable housing needs that it has. They can talk about the diversification of housing. Um, uh, what I mean by that is some communities have uh, a lot of housing of one type, typically in this area, a lot of single family in eastern Massachusetts, a lot of single family houses, um, less so on other types of housing. And that other type of housing can be really important for people throughout their life cycle. So if you're a young person who's coming out of college or coming out of high school and in their first job, you're not going to be able to afford a single family home. If you're an older person and you want to downsize, maybe you've had kids and they've gone to college, maybe you just don't want to handle a large house anymore. Uh, those seniors are prevented from downsizing within their communities if they don't have the housing types they need. So allowing a community to talk about that is really important. You raise your hand. Yes, um, I just wanted to uh, jump in with a, a fun fact from the master plan. Um, the houses in Methville, 60% of them have eight bedrooms or more. So they're very large houses for very large prices. So the issue we have is when when it's really hard to find a house with two or three bedrooms here in Medfield. It sure is. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so um, if you're elderly or if you're a small family or just a married couple with no children, um, it is hard to find a house that matches your needs here in Medfield. And the standard for affordability that we have, the state defines it as whatever you make through your household makes a year, so you and yourself and any adult children, that amount of money times three is the amount of housing that you can afford. I think the average income in Metro is roughly 130000 per household, and the average home price is roughly, I think, 750000 So uh, even Metro residents cannot currently afford Metro homes um, by those standards. So you're looking at five to even 10 times more than what people are making is the type of housing currently available. So while this is not, uh, it's not an affordable housing incentive, just creating more market, uh, market, uh, market, yeah, market rate housing will take some of the pressure off. Mm -hmm. uh, those affordable housing apartments will allow people to, if you can't afford better, you typically will live in better. So it'll help everyone, especially uh, workforce or regular residents, just find something that actually matches their lifestyle. And that's exactly the type of, um, that's what we mean by that housing diversification, it's different types of housing, it's different styles of housing. 
um, it's important for a healthy community to have that again from a planning perspective. So that's the that's the opportunity side. That's the you know let's let's talk about what housing needs there are. I'm working with the community where they've got a large employer coming in, and the employer is worried about the fact that the community might not have enough housing for their new employees coming in here. So housing is very much a part of economic development. We talk about whether or not uh, the people who work in town can actually live in the town that they can work in, and that's becoming increasingly less so. And that conversation has been held about town employees, you know, teachers, fire, police, et cetera. But it's also true about the people who maybe run small businesses in a town, um, staff those small businesses, a lot of restaurants, for example, have had trouble finding staffing. Those are people that we enjoy going to restaurants. We think is part of the vitality of the town to have something like that. But if the people who work there can't live in the town, that makes it difficult. So that's the diversification. That's the economic uh, development argument. There are some sticks, and there's two really key sticks. One of them is the loss of access to grant funds. So the top three funds there, Housing Choice, Local Capital uh, Projects, and the MassWorks Infrastructure Program, those are specifically listed in the legislation that um, uh, cities and towns that don't comply can't have access to them. HLC uh, just added another 13 grant programs to that list. So. You're not in compliance, you can't get those funds. And then finally, I mentioned the Attorney General. Uh, they had sent out advisory guidance in March 2023 um, that stated essentially all MBTA communities must comply with the law. Uh, there are fair housing issues if they don't comply. And in fact, there is a town where the leadership of the town has stated categorically that we don't intend to comply, and they have been sued by a uh, third-party group. Um, uh, under fair housing uh, regulations for non-compliance. So I mentioned that MBTA communities is a tool, but it's not the tool. In other words, it addressing MBTA communities is not going to solve everything that a community might need to solve. And so my colleague Erica developed this slide to talk about the different types of housing programs that are out there. Obviously not every community needs all of these, but there are specific housing programs for the unsheltered, uh, for people with extremely low or low income. Where MBTA communities uh, or 3A comes in is in the moderate income of the workforce and in two because um, MBTA Communities Act is primarily about market rate housing with some affordability components. And we'll talk about that affordability component. Sorry, we do have a question in the Q&A. Um, for loss of access to grant funds, is it the town that would be ineligible to apply, but a nonprofit located in the town could still apply? That is a really good question. I will double check it. I believe it's the town can't apply, but I don't know that for sure. So Gene, we'll, uh, we'll check on that for you. Great question. All right, I am stuck on this menu now. That's all right. <laughs> I wonder if I, no, you are stuck on that menu. Okay, there we go. So the other thing that I wanted to note is that, hang on, if you can just re-tap on this. I love using one screen for these. Um, so the other thing is I mentioned that zoning is not housing production. Uh, we'll talk um, some more about what zoning is, but there are other factors besides zoning that come into play when you're trying to produce housing. And certainly some of the communities I'm working with do in fact want to produce housing. And so this is of critical importance to them. Just because you zone something does not mean that you're going to get housing. So it's the strength of the market in the community financial feasibility, which is 
huge element because interest rates have risen over three times. So projects that might have been financially feasible a few years ago aren't necessarily financially feasible now. Um, uh, developable sites, the community actually has to have sites that can be developed and that the seller is willing to sell to somebody to be developed. Um, not always the same thing. Available labor is a critical one at the moment. There have to be enough people who are actually going to build the housing. And interestingly enough, they have to have somewhere to live as well, too. So, you know, whether or not we can get um, uh, people to build them um, and the, whether or not the community is a desirable place to live. And I would add to that whether or not the community has signaled that they're interested in having developed uh, um, for, for the communities that are trying to produce housing, that are trying to meet certain needs, um, the friendliness of the, uh, the streamlined permitting process in the community is an important factor. I'm curious, is there a look back period? And I say that when I think of like Walpole, they've done so much right around their train station, mm -hmm. but yet this came up, I'm sure, after all the permits were pulled and it was under development. So are communities getting a grace where they, they did do the right things in the last three, four, five years? Excellent question. No. <laughs> and the reason is because it's zoning, not actual production, that the um, state is asking for. So we'll talk a little bit more about how zoning sees what's already there. So keep that in mind. But that is a very good question. And one that has been uh, somewhat, I love these slippy scarves, don't do they just escape? Um, it's, it's been a question of concern for many communities. So um, remind me, but we will address that. So in other words, uh, there have been communities that say, oh, we have to produce 6,000 houses or 6,000 dwelling units rather under this law, we're going to pass this, the so 6,000 are going to appear overnight, we're very concerned. These things all come into play. So you're not going to get instantaneous housing under this law. You'll be zoned for it, but it doesn't mean it's going to appear immediately. All right. We're about to plunge into the higher level parts of the compliance model. Um, we're going to walk you through the process of doing the compliance model, um, the different things that we're looking at as tests and how this has an implication for you. So the compliance model is based on two components. One is a GIS or geographic information systems component, looks at the geography of the area. And one is an Excel-based component that pulls information, unfortunately hand-entered, um, but pulls information from your existing zoning, applies it to the geography, and calculates the number of units um, uh, to understand whether or not you're going to meet the requirements. Um, I'll go through sort of the, the um, implications of each of these, but just know that in addition to telling you whether or not you comply, the model can also be used to test different scenarios. And that's true of testing both the geography. In other words, you can come up with different areas to test, but also different dimensional standards and other requirements. So for example, if you're looking at an area and it's very close to compliance and you say, what if we allowed three and a half stories instead of three or four stories into three? The model would allow you to test that and see if it makes a difference. So it's kind of an, it's an iterative process at understanding compliance. So basically, what we do is we download the model, the land database, which the state has produced. So all communities are pulling from the same data. So you won't have one community say, well, I pulled from this, and another community saying, I pulled from that. They created the database that we pull. We bring that information into GIS. We pull the parcel information 
that we're going to test. We then apply it to the model, add the zoning, spit it out, say, okay, we are in compliance, we're not in compliance. If we're not in compliance, we then do the iteration. So there's three things that we're looking for, three tests. One is the land area. Where is it? How big is it? Um, whether or not it's adjacent for transit, that's not something that you have to worry about because you're in an adjacent community, and whether or not there's excluded land, and we'll talk a little bit about excluded land. Capacity, that's the number of units. When we talk about capacity, uh, unit capacity, that's the number of dwelling units that can be produced. Um, density is the dwelling units per acre. So density is where the land area and the capacity start to interact. Transit adjacency again. And then zoning is the third. And that's all of the things that you see up here, all the things that's in traditional zoning, uses, lot size, dimension, parking, open space, and the density restrictions that you might have. These are components that go into the model itself. And they all work together. So if you change one, it's going to have an impact on the other pieces that you do. So if you change your land area, it's going to have an impact on the unit capacity that's developed. If you change some of the zoning parameters, that will also have an um, impact on the capacity. So we're going to review each test in turn. So these are your requirements. You have a minimum land area of 50 acres. Don't have to locate anything in a station area. And you have a minimum contiguous district size of 25 acres. And you see an asterisk there. And what that's reminding me to tell you is that if you end up with a larger land area, let's just say you do 60 acres for the sake of an argument, because you don't have to do just your minimum, your minimum contiguous district size will be 30 instead of 25. In other words, we put 25 there because we're basing it off the minimum land area, but if you go for a larger district, your, your minimum size is half of your larger district. So there's some... Um, layers of math that we, the consultants, have to keep in mind as we're advising you, and that's one of them. So um, in terms of district location, that's really about where it is in relation to the station area from the compliance. Yes, go ahead. And that last point, I just want to make sure I understand. I yes, think please. what you said is whatever your land area is, 50% of it has to be biggest. Exactly. Yeah. I was like, when people repeat back what I said, I think that's good. Nope, that's excellent. So district location in a community that has a transit station is related to the station area. I would also add that it's important for communities that don't, because where you put it will have impacts on um, uh, you know, what you're trying to support. For example, if you're supporting a downtown, as some communities are, they may be putting the housing in or near the downtown. Others don't want it in a commercial area, but for the purposes of a model, of the, of the model, district location refers to the station area. District size um, and contiguity of district, we've already uh, talked about on that. But we haven't talked about what contiguity is. And so these diagrams explain uh, when you're drawing the um, boundaries, how to think about contigu uh, contiguity. So areas have to share at least one parcel boundary. So you see our blue blue blob there is a contiguous district. All the, the parcels are together. There are a couple of parcels that are across the street. That is allowed. You can do that. We had one where we had a five-way intersection come in, and because it's all across the street, that's contiguous if you cross the intersection. Um, if you have areas with different 
zoning rules that are adjacent to each other, they're still contiguous. I'll have a picture of that on the next uh, slide, but just anticipate that some districts are allowed. When you're drawing it, yes. What's from the standpoint of this concept? Yes. What's wrong with the lower right one? Ah, I was just getting to that. They're basically, the person who drew this as an example basically just ran down the middle of the street to try and connect. No, no, I know what's administratively wrong. I mean, conceptually, what's wrong with two pieces like that that are zoned? What is the inherent problem with that? Oh. I, I would understand 50 single acres. Right, exactly. In, but what's actually wrong with that? So if you didn't have that connecting line the way that was done, Right. If you just take out that connecting line and say these are two separate districts, they're both over five acres, nothing wrong with that whatsoever. It just doesn't count as your contiguous parcel. And, and the reason that there is that requirement for the contiguous parcel is what? My understanding, because I don't that that's part of the guidelines at HLC, um, is that they wanted to make sure that there was at least one, it goes into the reasonable size requirement of the legislation. How they define reasonable size is that there would be half of your total requirement would be a contiguous area. I again, understand the administrative answer there. I don't understand the conceptual reason why that matters. And you may not either. Yeah, exactly. I was going to okay. say, well, we're beyond that. That's they, that, what they told us was going to be the reasonable size. So um, I will say further that I've heard anecdotally is that they wanted people to be able to zone for full neighborhoods. And that's what they were thinking of is that they, like, this would feel more like these are actually awfully small parcels to be doing this, but just go with it. Those are very large parcels or something that would feel more like a full neighborhood than something that is disjointed like that. So um, I'm going to go to the next examples that might also help some, but but that's my understanding. So, however, don't quote me on that because that was anecdotal. I have no official information on that. So a couple of other things, there are some communities that will have uh, split parcels where they have um, split zoning, one half of the parcel or one third of the parcel is in one zone and one is the other. You can't do that for this, uh, for the compliance model. All the parcels have to be fully within the boundary. You can't um, and uh, you can't therefore create split parcels or include partial parcels in a district. Um, if you have subdistricts, so this is what I meant before, this is one big district with subdistricts in it. And that can be really valuable for communities that don't want to have the same density requirements across all their districts. So they may, for example, say, hey, look, we'd like to have, uh, so say that's a blue area, we'd like to have that be a little bit denser and we'd like the sub areas to feather out into the neighborhood. Alternatively, they could be saying, look, that sort of sea green is along the street. We'd like that to be higher density, but we'd like it to step down into the neighborhoods. So if you have a sub-district system, you can um, uh, be more creative in tailoring the design to meet your needs. Um, the key is that all of your districts together average out to the 15 dwelling units per acre. So you still have to meet the geographic requirements and the land area, but each sub-district doesn't have to be 15 unit dwelling units per acre. They just have to average down. The other thing is I mentioned something called excluded land. So there's two types of land, the three types of land. There's just your regular land, right? That's where there's no sort of restriction on it. 
Excluded land is land that um, cannot be modeled for unit capacity. In other words, there's a zero capacity on that. Um, and it affects your overall uh, density per acre because it's going to bring it down if it's, if it's in your district. Um, I've got a definition later on of excluded land. Um, just know for the purposes of the geography that we're talking about now that you can't deliberately draw your district to exclude public land. In other words, that public land has to be within that blue district. You can't just draw it out and say, yeah, that doesn't, that's not included. You can, however, use public land for your contiguity requirements. So if you sort of flip that image in your set, head and said, we're not excluding the public land, we're connecting those two sides of public land, that is absolutely allowed. Just know it's going to affect your density when you do that, it's going to bring it down. Yeah, I'm just trying yeah. to figure out the algorithms here. That, so the one with the public land. Yes. If, if it went for a second, let's assume that's a park. So there's a good reason yes. why everybody would love that. Is the acreage of the district that entire quadrilateral, including the acre of the acreage of the public land? It would have the average. So you could have that as part of the district. Absolutely. Counting as part of the acreage, as long as the density of everything that was left was enough to get you to 15. Exactly. 100%. Yeah, okay. but some communities might want to draw it around it and say, "Hey, we don't want our density to have to go up, so we're just gonna we're gonna go around that." Um, yeah, there are better ways of drawing a district. So these are some very very simplified examples. So this is where we get just to recap. We're looking for fifty acres of land when we when we do the tasks and work with you. We're looking for the contiguous district of twenty five acres or fifty percent. Um, we're going to check that if you have any non-contiguous districts, that there are at least five acres. Um, so you can have one big one and lots of small ones, for example, um, and that you've drawn the districts appropriately. Any other questions on land? All right, unit capacity. So unit capacity is 750 units. We had a simpler explanation in the calculation, but it was a little misleading, so we took it out. Um, so it's based on your unit housing count and that there, there are minimums and caps, but yours is 750 units. Your minimum density requirement, as you know, is 15 million units per acre. And um, uh, you don't have to worry about the station area. And that's just a recognition that the unit capacity is not a housing production target. It's really a way of measuring that the size of the district is meeting with the requirements. In other words, Section 3A is really short, and HLC had to come up with a way of creating standards and guidelines to actually allow for Section A to be um, uh, become into regulatory effect. And this is how they've done it the land area and the unit capacity. Can I ask a question? Yeah, of course. Um, I think on an earlier slide, the minimum land area was the lesser of 50 acres or 1.5% of the developable land area at the time. But is 1.5% of the developable land area of Netfield more than 50 acres? Can't remember if I did that calculation or not. And what's included? Because there's so much public land. Yes, I know. We did <laughs> We did a map of your excluded and um, sensitive land. Sensitive land is the second type of land. I haven't talked to you about it yet. 
and uh, you have an, impress an impressive amount yeah. of excluded land. Um, I don't know. I'd have to go back and check that. Um, I did check a couple of the calculations. So where I got the numbers from, just so you know, is uh, um, HLC has an MBTA Communities Act website. And there's a drop down table in there, and you can look up any of the communities, and the information is in there. So I didn't have to do the calculations. I have been doing them for some communities. It just might be worth confirming because mm -hmm. they may not agree with what we think should be excluded. I think you went through this with the affordable housing. Yeah. 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 yeah, I think the number is very similar. Yeah. So, yeah, we can look into that and do the calculation. That's not a problem. <clears throat> So multifamily housing, a lot of people have uh, images in their mind about what multifamily housing does and does not look like. And uh, many of the comments in the popular press has been, have been targeted more towards the larger size, uh, what we would call the, the mid-rise or greater here. This is an image by a company called Octopus that wrote a book called Missing Little Housing. Um, and this idea of making housing is something that we've been talking about, especially with the adjacent communities and the adjacent small towns, because some of these types of housing is already um, found in many of these communities. So when we think of missing middle housing, we think um, the requirements under 3A are three family or greater, or uh, more than one building off per lot with more than one housing unit. The building, which at its minimum would be two duplexes. So if you think of the lower end as being a three-family or two duplexes, and then the higher end is, you know, all the way up to what the, the community wants to do. But this idea of that that three and four up to probably um, the courtyard apartments, bungalows, the townhouses, the multiplexes, we think of it as like four to eight units or four to 12 units, six to 12 units, eight to 20, that sort of range is a housing type that um, would fit well in many of our New England communities, but is also missing a couple. So we tend to, tend to think it's either single family or it's a lot of older housing, some of which actually does fit the middle, missing middle, but there's not very much of it anymore. So, um, and what we have is aging. So this is something that just to show you that missing that multifamily housing isn't just this; it's actually all of that missing middle plus the, the um, uh, mid-rise housing. Now let's talk about density a little bit. So I've mentioned it was dwelling units per acre. So we're back to our blue block, um, and we're showing uh, an area. So zoning is allowing for 150 units on 10 acres. Math is easy we have 150 dwelling units per acre. So from the capacity and from the density, we are totally compliant. Um, uh, density is uh, can be impacted, however, by restricted land or excluded land, as we just talked about. And we mentioned a park, and park, in fact, is one of the definitions uh, or one of the categories of um, excluded land. So it's environmentally protected land, um, uh, a certain kind of five, uh, surface water, is uh, excluded land, public land in general, there is an exception for that. Uh, land that is permanently conserved is excluded land. Um, and uh, one of the, the first, the highest level of welfare protection is also excluded land. Uh, with public land, there is, uh, there is a way to override it, but it is very specific. So some communities have land that they've been wanting to, is publicly owned, but they've been wanting to develop for housing, 
saying, hey, can we can we do this, right? It's listed as public land now. There is a override in the compliance model that allows you to say, we have public land and it is either, uh, and it is fully in the process of being disposed of for housing. So it can't be that we'd like to do this someday. It has to be that we are in the process. Um, one that I uh, imagine is something that you're looking at given our conversations. Um, you can override that. So normally if it is owned by a municipality, uh, it would be fully excluded, but there is a column in there where you can override it and put the acreage that is going to be used for housing. Um, the example we used at the time was a school, but maybe you're only um, disposing of the school and not all of the land. So you put the developable area in there, the land that actually may be disposed of, and you have to put a note as to why you're doing that. And that allows you to override it, allows HLC to see that there's been an override, and you can um, uh, do it that way. But otherwise, it is excluded. What that does, though, is it reduces the denominator. So if your numerator is, I'm taking you back to the third grade math, if your numerator is the number of dwelling units and your denominator is the area, the excluded land affects your, your denominator, which means you go from a MBATA district with 10 acres and um, you want to do, you have to only have uh, eight acres. Yeah, you can get 15 dwelling units per acre, but if you have a requirement for 150 units, which was true of the first town that we worked with on that, you're not actually going to be compliant, right? Because your, your density or your unit, your density or your units is going to be impacted by that park uh, being there. Little grass question here. Yeah, please. So the bottom one here, I get that that's 120 units, eight acres, but the question I've asked before was, if you put a, if you zoned it for 150 units yeah. on eight acres, so the 10 acres collectively was 15 units, is that compliant? So you're on the 10 acres, you've zoned it for 100, 150 units, you've got 15 dwelling units per acre, you are compliant. If you are, um, I always have problems, with, I didn't actually do this original slide. If you are zoning and you need to have 10 acres um, and the uh, you do, you're not getting the capacity you need over the 10 acres, in other words, you have to go off. I'm saying you are, I'm saying that the second situation, yes. eight acres of the 10 acres is developable. Yes. If you zone the eight acres of the 10 acres, not at 15 units per acre, but at 20, you know, 18 or whatever, eight yes. times, whatever to get to exactly. 150. You're fine. You're, You're totally compliant. Fine. You're yes, absolutely. compliant for 10 acres and compliant for eight You're acres. You're compliant for the eight acres because it's the eight acres of developable land. Sorry, I see your question now. Yeah. You confused me with the first one. Yeah, and you can absolutely zone above. In fact, uh, most communities well, yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't think I'm going there with it. I'm just trying <laughs> to figure out how to, how to comply with the, the algorithm here. Yes, yes. Okay. Your answer is correct. So when we look at density, we start to look at these factors. We've been calling them levers and or levers and later slides. So you've got the the district size is a large district. You've got a low unit capacity because you've got restrictive zoning and you've got low density. Obviously, that's red because you're not going to be in compliance. If you are um, sort of moving these around, now you're moving your district size up from more medium 
you've got a less restrictive zoning, you've got more unit capacity, and you've got a higher density of moving post components on this. You can also go super large, super permissive, then you get super high unit capacity and super high density, at least on those particular ones that all relative right to what you started with. Um, but the point is these start to move together. So if you change one, it's going to have an impact on the others. And that's the type of modeling that we're doing with communities is helping them understand if we move one thing, what's the next thing that moves. So we're looking for 750 units. We're looking for 15 dwelling units across all districts. I've had any number of people saying, well, why don't we just divide the 15 into the 750 and we'll zone that area and call it a day. Excluded land means that we can't do that. Um, it's not that simple. It was not the 10 acres plus uh, um, and 150 units equals 15 acres because you take out two. Um, and that's why that math doesn't work. Stop there. Any more questions on that? Because we're about to go into the zoning, which for me is the fun part. So. Yeah. <laughs> Again, it's a philosophical question, so yeah. you may not know the answer, but that suggests to me that the state is saying we want 15 minutes breaker. We don't really want more than 15 minutes breaker because I, I don't inherently see what's wrong with 10 acres of which eight are developable at a higher unit. Again, going back to the model yeah. of the park in the middle. The park in the middle see... with higher density around is perfectly. Yeah, but you're not yeah. getting credit for the 10 acres to comply. They say, oh, it would be wonderful. What and I don't understand why that's higher. Sorry, I interrupted you. Well, I, yeah. I just don't see why the state would find that objectionable. That's all. The idea of having a higher density around the park would not be objectionable at all. Except yeah. that it's not it's not sufficient to comply with a 50 acre minimum. So I'm not saying I want I want the credit for 10 acres right. with the higher density, and I don't understand the philosophy that says, oh, that's a bad thing. Oh, I see where you're getting at. Your geography is still the 10 acres. That's not a problem. So you get your credit for having 10 acres. Your density, however, it's eight in the denominator, not 10. So oh, then, yeah, no, I, I, yeah, okay, yeah. That's how you get to the higher density. Yeah, exactly. I'm saying if you had, you still get, yes. you had 150 units for the 10 acres, but two were not developable, but you were still zoning for 150 acres on the other eight. Yes. You would be getting you would be getting 10 acres toward the 50. Yes. Okay. Yes. All right. Yeah. Okay. No, you're fine. Glad I asked your question. Yes. Okay. <laughs> that's that's why I'm here. I just misunderstood what you were asking. Yeah. Absolutely. All right. Zoning. So why can't we count existing developments? Why can't we count projects that we know are about to be developed? Some communities have a large pipeline. Some communities have already been doing a lot of work. And that is because we're doing zoning, not production. It's not a production target. And the reason that's important is because zoning doesn't care what's on the lot now. So back to our famous food blog, that's what zoning looks at, right? It says there's a parcel and it's this many parcels and it's got you know these dimensional standards on them, but it zoning treats the parcels as though there's nothing else on it for the purposes of creating new zoning. That's a little simplified, but but when we look at that map and we look at those parcels, anything could be on there. Those could they could be empty right now. They could have any of those three images of different uh, building types and different uses. The top one's a mixed use with apartments, and you've got um, duplexes, a series of duplexes, and you've got a larger multifamily. 
those could all be on that now, but what matters for the future is what it's zoned for. So think about zoning as what can be there from the perspective of the community, what should be there, but not necessarily what's there now. And you can actually see that in a lot of our current, um, uh, very traditional New England neighborhoods. Um, if you've ever had some uh, seen a neighborhood where somebody's come and built a really big house on a neighborhood that has a lot of existing smaller houses on it in that neighborhood, it's almost certainly because the zoning allows the bigger house, that zoning came into place after all of those other houses were built. So that the existing houses are frequently not actually in compliance with the existing zoning. That's a traditional pattern in New England because much of New England was built before zoning came into place and that leads to a lot of variances. <laughs> So the entire 50 acres that the town comes up with have to be undeveloped? No. No. And that's a great question, and I'm glad you asked it. It means that the zoning doesn't care about what's on them now. Zoning, zoning has no heart in this respect. The zoning is new. It's about what could be on them in the future. So, for example, you might be considering an area that has... Um, some multifamily that's already developed on it. That's great. If that multifamily just happens to, you know, you can look at what its current density is per acre. Um, and if it works with what you're proposing, that's terrific. If it's um, zoned to be more or less than what's there, as long as the zoning is compliant with what the state is looking for, then that's fine. Now, the problem from the zoning perspective is that have you just made that area, um, uh, that existing development, non-compliant by the zoning that you've just created? And that's another question. But the model's agnostic on that. The model just wants to know what is the future zoning going to be? And that's why you're not counting towards that 750 something that's already built because it's built or something that's in the pipeline because it's come in under the past zoning. The model, the compliance model is interested in what the future zoning is going to be. We're going to go for louder. I just want to make yeah. sure I understand what you're saying each time. Let me give a specific example here in town. That Please do that. Might not be, yeah. might not, I'm not worried about the five acre issue, mm -hmm. but like the park. Yes. If I, in the early reading on this, I think the park has an actual density of 12 units per acre. Okay. If we rezone, and let's for a minute assume right now the park was zoned to be compliant with what was required for the thing that was proposed, and it was 12 units per acre. Yeah. And that's what it's zoned for. If yeah. we rezone the land that the park is on uh -huh. for 15 units per acre, yeah. that would. That 15 units per acre counts. Okay. Yeah. That's the best answer you've had. <laughs> <laughs> I did try and win with at least the existing units count toward the 750. No, it's the future capacity of that land that counts towards the 750. It doesn't matter what you create, you're going to have to have zoning to develop 750 new units of housing. Zoning that allows for the possibility of 750 uh, um, uh, units beyond yeah. what's already there. Yeah, so if you, your 12 units per acre that you just mentioned, say that there's um, 24 units, right? So you've got 24 units. We zoned it for 12 units uh, per acre. We now rezone it for 15 units per acre. It still has 24 units on it. 
but it's zoned for 15 units per acre, which means that the capacity of the zoning is now based on that 15 units per acre. Doesn't change what's on the lot. You don't have to change that lot to, you know, that development um, to bring it up to 15 units per acre. You just have to zone for it to be 15 units per acre. We don't have to immediately go out and develop it. No, you just absolutely not. That's up to enabling zoning. Yes, to allow for that. Yes. The production is on the private side. The town is not responsible for producing it has to be a potential new, capacity new, of... But only if you tore the park down and built it yeah, again. That's right. The next owner, 75 years from now, cares yeah. down and wants to do a new development, they have to do it at the Yes. Right. Yeah. And um, what we're considering doing so we don't create any new non conformities or more need for variances. Um, they're hard to get. We out of work. <laughs> <laughs> um, we could do an overlay district, which basically will keep the current zoning intact. You just add a new set of zoning that you can you have the option for. You can opt into it, but the phase will remain the same. Okay. So you would still be compliant to it. Currently, it's, you know, nothing is changing, but if you wanted to, mm -hmm. you can apply by the separate, different sets of rules. And I think you can, if you want to describe a little bit better what, what an overlay is, but yes. Um, it's a by right. So, it's by right. right. It has to be by right. Yeah. You can do site plan review, but it has to be by right. So, so for example, I have a community that I'm working with that does, in fact, have a lot of housing units in, in a particular area. But they've also got some parcels that, for whatever reason, haven't been redeveloped. You know, they've got one story. This is a, a city, so it's got, you know, more dense development. They've got a couple of one-story buildings. It's a nice parcel, hasn't shifted. And then they've got, you know, six-story um, uh, condos, six-story apartments in the same air, general area. They are using this as part of their strategy. Yes, some of those are already built out and will stay built out. But by putting the zoning there, it might encourage those other parcels to be redeveloped, right? That's a, a valid strategy uh, to use this for. And that's why I'm saying you really need to think about what you need in terms of housing and where it should be and what else you're trying to support because that will make a difference. So again, unit capacity is a measure of the possibility. The state is saying your zoning has to provide for the possibility of a, at least 750 units. Um, it's not a count of existing or project. There's nothing to add or subtract. We're just looking at possibility. Um, so there's also some other restrictions in addition to the district and unit capacity pass. And we've talked about some of these already. You can't make mandated age restriction. Um, you can't regulate. And this is all to do with the um, suitability point uh, requirements that's in the legislation. You can't regulate the size of units, the bedroom size, the mix of bedrooms, the size of bedrooms, the number of occupants in a unit. Um, you cannot, this has been a source of huge confusion. You cannot mandate mixed-use development in the MBTA district. You can allow it, and that's that's what's confused a lot of people, is that they've assumed that the, it was a prohibition on mixed-use. That's not true. You can allow it, but you also have to allow the multifamily as a right. And there are some zoning strategies around this, because there are a number of communities that are worried about keeping their commercial districts commercial. They're afraid if it goes to multifamily as a right, they will lose some of their commercial district 
And so they've looked at the idea of maybe there's a bonus incentive for mixed use or for retaining some of the commercial. And these are all strategies that go around that. Affordable housing requirements. So, yes. You Excellent. cannot regulate or limit the number of occupants in the unit. And yes. I am not an expert in this area, but my understanding of the justification for regulating it has to do with water and sewer capacity and in some cases, maybe even public health. How can I? Can I read that that a family, five families can choose to go into a unit? Everybody, you know, some people are living in the garage if there is one. Some people are living in the living room. I, I'm saying this from because that was not five, but that was happening five doors up from me for years in a in a house. There's still health and safety legislation out there, right? There's the the dwelling unit is defined as you know unit for a household. So there's. So you can through health regulation. Well, you can't sit there and say, you know, a family of five people is allowed here, but not a family of six people, right? That, that that. Part but there are existing building codes and health codes that exist. So those, okay. the, the zoning doesn't trump public safety building or health, right? Okay. We're back to yeah. the difference between other regulations and zoning. The zoning cannot restrict the number of occupants. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, and that's a good question, by the way. All of your questions have been excellent, so don't worry. That's the Can I add something? Yeah, please. I think the um, three or more people per bedroom, that's what's considered overcrowded for under yeah. federal standards. So I think that's where Board of Health would kick in if there was an issue or a nuisance or stress public safety. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, you, you can't, I, I think what I'm hearing is that there's a unit here, it's a single family unit. You can't say, how many people can make up a single family, but you can, through other regulations, not allow multiple families to limit a single family unit by packing it. Right. It's the, and I think it's single household rather than family. Yeah. That gets into definitions. Yeah. Um, but yes, it's the it does not um, uh, supersede any okay. of the existing regulations uh, for health and safety. Affordable housing has been a big one um, in that there have been communities that said that we need more affordable housing than the limitations that are uh, put in place here. So the base uh, is that you're allowed to have affordable housing uh, requirements. It cannot exceed 10% of the total units offered at no less than 80% of the area median income. You can, of course, have some, there's some other strategies. Um, again, you can do bonus incentives for deeper affordability or greater affordability, but the as of right is limited to that. And then the other issue is that um, uh, you can do an economic feasibility analysis. So some communities that have had previous uh, developments that have a deeper level of affordability have done an EFA or in the process of doing an EFA that proves that the deeper affordability level is not a restriction on development in their community. So in other words, um, uh, if you can prove that developments in your area have been done, uh, financial limitation, then you can put in a deeper affordability. I am not an expert on that, but I know Eric's been working with communities. So if we want to go into more detail on that, we can do that maybe in the process. Can I ask? Just to let me know. Yeah. So I think um, I think I got this question from a resident in the past couple of weeks. Is why the ten percent? Uh, why not more? Mm -hmm. I think this was done as a requirement that if a, a town could easily say fifty percent of your units must be affordable, then that will effectively stop any developer from ever using this zoning because they're going to end up losing money. 
So if it's a way to, you know, contribute, you can still contribute to affordable household stock, uh, but the developer, there will be an incentive for them to also want to come and do it. So it's a way to keep it realistic, I guess. Yeah. And the other thing I've um, heard about site of bedrooms, uh, children, how many children are going to come into the school system. And I know that for the state hospital, actually, there was a study done for how many children are added per bedroom. And I think for two to three bedrooms, the chances of that specific unit bringing in one child to the school system was like 20 to 30 percent. So it is not um, a super high number. I have discussed this with other Norfolk County, um, like large developers and other planners and um, planning boards, and the numbers are pretty consistent across the board. It's between 20 to 30 percent. So it is not um, even large developments don't have significant impacts on the school system. So it's just something to keep in mind. You said just to clarify, a 20 to 30 percent chance of children in the unit, not 20 to 30 percent of the units. Yes, okay. chance, <laughs> chance per unit. Yeah, roll the dice. Yeah. One question related yeah. to maybe using Gus's uh, example of the park, which mm -hmm. is uh, fully being development, right? Mm -hmm. That has 25 percent affordable units in it now. Right? Yes, you could rezone it and and have that restriction of can that exceed 10 percent because it's ex existing, right? Okay. It, yes, because it would stay with its existing restriction. Okay. It's done under the 40B rules. It's a, so again, when we do um, uh, zoning changes, the existing use remains, right? It doesn't, it, and that's why you get the possibility of non-conformities. You might rezone um, a parcel that you own from uh, residential to commercial. Your residential house would then be non-conforming. Um, to that commercial use, but it doesn't change your ability to stay and live in your house. Where it comes in is when the property owner wants to make a change. Same is true here. If you rezone for 15 units per acre, it stays at your 12 units per acre unless the property owner wants to invoke that zoning and make a change to it. So, yes. Do you know how this, so two years ago, mm -hmm. you're being encouraged to adopt inclusion or three years ago. Inclusionary zoning, which is what we now have, so things yeah. like this, the state yeah. hospital project mm -hmm. is twenty five percent. How does the town? How does this intersect with? It's like it, the thing that bugs me about this is the state said we want you to run to this corner of the ring. We did right, and now it's like, oh no, no, no! Now we want you to run to the other corner of the ring. How does this interact with inclusionary zoning requirements? So it depends on how the town wrote them. It is one of the things that I will check as part of the process. Ours will not comply. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. That just saved me a whole bunch of research. <laughs> so there's a couple of ways you can do that. Um, the most sort of um, uh, drastic way is to change your existing inclusionary housing. But I wouldn't recommend that. I would just put a different standard in the this. Yeah, in the overlay. And basically say... Um, in this overlay, the affordable housing requirements are X, and that way the inclusionary zoning continues to apply to the rest of the town. That's the simplest way of doing it. So you, you've gone to all that trouble of putting inclusionary zoning in. So um, don't you know? Don't change it when you could just add it to the overlay. So. All right. So. Um, these are, so we've talked a little bit about what the guidelines or what the compliance model is looking for. There are a number of different ways that a community can control how big, how much, how wide, how tall. 
Some of them start to work against each other. So I've seen communities that do um, building height and lot and building coverage and floor area ratio and do setbacks and open space requirements. And you put all of those on there, what you really get is a mess. <laughs> um, but there is a way of figuring out which requirements make the most sense. Um, some of these, uh, these in particular, the, well, not the setbacks, but everything else feeds directly into the model. There are other, if you delve into the model, if, if you're of the, the, the mind that you love Excel and want to look at it, we collect in the model a lot of information. Um, not all of it feeds into unit capacity, and some of it is because the information we're collecting indicates a red flag that the model won't catch, mm -hmm. but HLC would catch. So. So let's bring it all together. We've got land area requirements, 50 acres, uh, size of one district, half, 50%. Um, minimum unit size of 750 units. You don't need to worry about your minimum. <laughs> and obviously the 15 units per acre. And so we'll pull all of those together, test your zoning, iterate, test again. Um, uh, and just, you know, when you think of the land area requirements, where you're putting your zoning, is just important in some cases of how large it is. So with that, um, I'm just obviously previewing that we'll have a community input session on December 14th. We can talk about that more. But if there's any, yes, this is this is even more of a good time for the discussion. And I have sure. maps, by the way. No, this one's, yeah. one's yeah. I think, straight. Oh, man. Yeah. Um, so you have 50 acres, 15 units per acre, which has zoning of 750. If you do whatever you do, you designate that. Mm -hmm. It strikes me that for sure you want to make it 10% affordable. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of like, even though it can't be more than 10% affordable, you don't want it to be less than 10% yes. affordable because yep. otherwise then you dig a hole mm -hmm. around your overall affordable. Right. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Other questions? You just been asking me while somebody else um needs to be volunteering. Let me just check the QA. Yeah. Um make sure this I would much rather have people asking questions. Yes, sir. Well, I'm, I'm curious about the excluded uh, land. Yes. I mean we've got a school down here, we can monitor school since on maybe 10, 15 acres. What's the top of is that excluded land? I guess would be my question. That is excluded land, yes. It, what what things are it sounds like public lands are excluded? Mm -hmm. Um uh I can pull up my laptop and I'll put it out. So surface water is excluded. Um Title Five, the first level of the um uh gone from my head now. Um on the, the buffers around um uh, water. Uh Parkland, protected open space. Then there's sensitive land, which I haven't mentioned. So sensitive land is okay to use for your unit capacity calculations. Sensitive lands is floodplains. It's like the second level of Title V, the second level of the water uh, protection um, areas. Um, uh, at prime agricultural soils is also in sensitive land. It's also Yes. Is it available it, for disposition for housing? Yeah, it's it's uh, privately owned. Oh, oh, I'm sorry. I thought um, you said it was public land. It's, it's a school. It's a school. Oh, it's yeah, then school. it's yeah. That's if it's privately owned. I'm so sorry. I didn't realize it was privately owned. Sure, <laughs> Is it privately owned? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. 
Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now that comes into the you know what else do you want? So when there's a, there's a couple of things I didn't mention on the Zen blessing um, that you should be aware of. They're not on the slides. I can back here the AC and just <laughs> so you can do development standards um, in there. So I mentioned it has to be as of right. You can do site plan review, but obviously it's not the special permit if it's uh, as of right. If you're doing site plan review and the sample zoning, there's a, a sample site plan review criteria set of criteria. Um, you can do development standards with that. And this gets back to what you said about the affordability is the development standards have to be tied to site plan review. You can't require things of the multifamily in the district that you're not requiring of everybody else. So for example, you can't say all multifamily in our overlay must provide 100% solar energy um, to the units, but not have a requirement for commercial uh, in that same area. So, um, uh, and the other thing to know is that you can set up uh, to do design guidelines. Um, you can put that into the zoning that the planning board can create design guidelines and use them. So you can look at architectural um, standards, uh, landscape standards, and so forth and so on. The design guidelines have to be advisory. Anything that you do on the development standards has to be quantifiable. So you can't put a development standard that says, this must be an attractive building because that is completely subjective. Um, uh, so, you know, the, there is that possibility, however, to put in those guidelines. They do have to be specific as well. Um, so a lot of communities are concerned about, well, how do we control what this looks like beyond how big, how high, how much, how wide? And the development standards and the design guidelines work to that. A lot of people are also using, or communities are using development standards for things like we want straw water management. Um, uh, you know, um, other requirements about circulation, uh, whether it's pedestrian or vehicle access, safe access, the usual site plan um, requirements there. So, yes, well, if you look at our Metro State Hospital site mm -hmm. compliance, that can't be part of this because it's downloaded about the building. It is in uh, a process where it's going to be used for housing. Uh, we think it's going to be part of the strategy, but it's not. The full strategy. Uh, Maria, do you want to talk more about this? Do you want me to say something about this? Um, so I'm Christine. You're Christine. <laughs> if you want to jump in, I think you have more comments than I do. <laughs> um, so we had a meeting at the CN Hospital um, probably a month ago now, five weeks ago, and Secretary Jackson, who is the new Secretary of the HLC, was at that meeting. Um, he loves the CN Hospital project, it's fantastic. And then he seemed kind of shocked when I said it wasn't going to count for MCA zoning. So he is trying to work with us. The problem is they don't want to get an exemption to that deal um, for this project because there's 10 other towns behind us who aren't building housing who are looking for that exemption. They recognize that we started the state hospital project before MCA was even passed. So we're kind of stuck in that middle. We started it before they want to get the credit for building the housing, but they also want to make sure you know, we're following the letter of the law. The interesting part in this project is that um, the state hospital project needs housing works funded. So for anybody who says, oh, we're just not going to follow the MBTA zoning, we're going to fail it because we don't need that money, 
we actually need uh, the second year funding of that for the project. So recognizing that, Secretary Guest is, is working with us. We had a meeting this week, kind of kicked off the discussions again. Um, when we originally talked to them, they had said no because it was public land right. and we had an LDA. They've since refined that over the last year and they're willing to, to work with us. So we're really hoping, and I'm hoping it's our 100% strategy. I don't need a plan B, but we've at least got some that will be part of the strategy. Um, and hopefully we'll have an answer for that before we go to town meeting. So, but until then, we're kind of running on these parallel tracks because of the housing market crash. So when we worked earlier, we tested the state hospital, we've tested two other districts as possibilities just to see what it would look like. I think where we are is that there's not, a, you know, we're not standing here tonight saying the plan is X. Um, we're still evaluating. So I do have two maps. If anybody wants to get up and scribble and point to things on maps, what I did was um, uh, I have your excluded land. I have your sensitive land on here. And then I've identified the state hospital site and I've identified in sort of a pale yellow, so nobody thinks it's a hard idea. The two other districts, we just tested to see what it looks like. And so we love people's feedback uh, on that as well, maybe after we get through the Q&A. So, yeah. I know we have people online to speak yeah. as well, but just a quick question. Just want to be very clear. There's no time limit as to when these 750 units would have to be on. Correct. Line. Yes. We're just saying you have to create zoning. That's the art of the possibility that would allow for these MBTA. Right. And in our thoughts are these overlay districts, mm -hmm. which don't have to be contiguous in one big pot, to be several mm -hmm. smaller thoughts. I'm very confused about the production versus uh, future zoning requirement as it relates to the state hospital and Christine's comments. Yeah. Just it's not so much that the project will yield or produce units, it's that you want that land mass in the developable. Uh, base, so to speak, of our 50 acres. Right. Is, is that really the point? So the the point is that if you're you know you're going to produce X amount of that, and I'll let you speak to those. But what it's zoned for, what its capacity, you're wanting the capacity that the zone is for, which is not necessarily the same thing that you're going to produce. Right. So yeah. that when um, you know when we did the zoning for the state hospital, it can do the 750 units uh, on that site. Then we entered into the LDA fraternity, which is only 334. So the original pushback from HLC and the state was, well, you, you already agreed to only 334 units. So we're asking them to look back at that because we all know that our colleagues, some of our other towns, I won't throw them under the bus, get them, <laughs> that are never going to be housing. They, they zoned legacy plate, they, they're using legacy plates. We know that's not going to be housing. So our appeal to the secretary was, we're actually building the housing. And as a town, collectively, we voted unanimously pretty much to do this without the threat of any deal. So we're, we're essentially, you're punishing us for actually building the units where if the whole goal and, and what the governor is trying to accomplish is actually producing additional housing stock, we're doing it, not just zoning for it. And that was something we said when he was in, in visiting, is that, Part of my frustration, and I voiced it at a conference in January this year, we voiced it We voiced it quite a few times when we have mm -hmm. right here. 
I actually asked him, why wouldn't you allow a town like Medfield that's actually active, right? Because where I get fed up with the politics of the state is move your lips and that's all you have to do versus act on it. So here we are a town getting ready to make way for 334 occupiable homes or apartments. Mm-hmm. We're acting on it. We are literally going to be able to get people to have a place to live versus the game. And that's what I think it is. It's just a stupid game that the state's playing that will set aside a parking lot and will say we can build there. And you're never going to do that. So what are you wasting people's time, money, and energy versus really, if, if you mean something, Governor Haley, put up and shut up and say to Medfield, you know what, you're acting on it? We're going to reduce you from 750 to 550. And any town that steps up in the next 12 months and you actually act on it, we'll reduce yours. And those that want to drag their heels may end up picking up the slack. But do something to get people to act on it. But it's just so frustrating to know that we are trying to do something and we're getting penalized and we're getting pushed back. Mm-hmm. It, makes you, it makes you want to go to Shaw's Plaza, do it and say, yeah, good luck. That's never going to happen. Hey, Governor Hilly, good for you. That was kudos. Like, that was awesome. The, so don't, we're don't disagree on the frustration all of it. I can hear that. I, I completely understand why you're frustrated. I, there's, there's, you know, um, my goal is part of the consultant team that's helping you is to help you figure out that strategy that works. So, you know, if we have to rerun some of the models on the state hospital, if we have to look at some of the areas, you know, what portion of it that works? Will they let you count the whole 750? Will they let you count a portion of it? We go with something else. Will they give you some sort of offset? We don't know yet, but we're here to try and help you, A, find that solution, and then B, communicate with everybody else about what that solution is. Maybe we're getting some input about what that solution should be, especially at the December 14th meeting, especially if you don't have an answer yet. Um, So, you know, we're here to help you get to that finish line, however that may be. And it could be multiple. I will say, I do have quite a few clients that are very serious about using this act to promote housing in their community. They are seeing it as that option to have a hard conversation, but they just haven't been able to have it before. I do have some communities that say we're going to have to, just because the way our community is structured, we are going to have to zone some places that already have housing, but we'd like to zone some places like that one I mentioned earlier that don't, so we can get you know a coordinated strategy in this particular area. But yeah, it's frustrating when you've been working on something for so long, and then the rules change and and it makes your life more difficult. So we're here to help you through all of that and get you to where you want to be. Yeah. It, it's, it's just, we, you know, want more houses safe, mm-hmm. right? So let's let's incentivize towns to actually do it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Something that I analyzed as working best in Medfield is most likely practically to create affordable housing of the size that we need, a thousand square foot house, mm-hmm. is if we do accessory dwelling units. And, and it sounds to me like accessory dwelling units don't comply with this at all. So that yes. they're just not in the equation. That is unfortunately true. Yeah. Um, uh, you could do, I mean, <laughs> I asked facetious, but I don't know which community I was working on. And um, I, I know Eric was doing the analysis. And I said, hey, Eric, what happens? If, because we were going through um, a couple of different scenarios. I said, what happens if you just rezone everything to three family? And he said, actually, I think for this community, that might work. So, yeah. That's a pretty blanket strategy, right? I would recommend a community just say, oh, we're not going to even talk about extending three family and we're done. 
um, because you know that's not really taking into account local uh, needs, local considerations. But what I am saying is that yeah, the the opportunity to look at different possibilities. ADU isn't, but maybe there's some areas of town where duplexes, two duplexes on a site would be perfect. You could have a front one that uh, you know if you've got a deep lot. The first one may be an existing two-family or a house that's large enough to convert into a two-family, and then you allow a two-family behind it. Maybe that particular house, you know, we're thinking of our, in our example, has a barn that can become a two-family. Now that um, property is allowed to have four units on it, and uh, as long as we can figure out what the acreage would be, if we've got the right part of town geographically, a strategy like that could also contribute to your solution. So. Yes, sort of an editorial comment, mm -hmm. but and it's actually appealing to you. you. You have a background in community planning, so my issue, the issue I wrestle with, because we're talking about how I comply mm -hmm. with a state mandated requirement, and I think a lot of what we've done in this town, we already are trying to figure out how to do these things in ways that work. Yes. And then you have people coming in from Boston saying, oh, no, 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 we live in the city. We'll tell you how to do this. And that is that is frustrating, but leave that aside. Mm -hmm. Forget the compliance. Yes. 40 years ago, there were a lot of multifamily homes here in mm -hmm. Massachusetts. And then laws were passed that allowed those multifamily homes to be subdivided into individual condos which immediately set up an economic proposition for a property owner that said, I can get a lot more money extracted from individual condo sales, even though I sell a two or three family, split it up. Mm -hmm. Don't worry about how it gets managed. Just you three all bought unit and you're going to all figure it out. And I just extracted a lot more money out of the three family than we would have had when those three families would have been affordable. So now we, get, we decimated those by changing that rule. When I think about Medfield, mm -hmm. and for a second here, let's assume we do need 10 acres and we decide, well, you know, most of these folks that do this, they just put it in your city center. Well, so when we, we zone 10 acres on South Street, mm -hmm. now what happens, the thing that I'm concerned about is what are the economic dynamics that you set up when you do that? And it's the same thing as what you just described. Well, we can take this historic place and if you can put two family in the front, two family in the back, the barn's still there. Like, Yes, and the people that own that property, perhaps if they're looking to leave, will say, hey, I can sell four living units. I could, you know, I'd get a good price for this as an acre and a half with a barn, but I'll get a whole lot more with four living units here. And the issue is, so how do, you know, worrying about how we actually change the character of our community <clears throat> that we not get so distracted with what, how do we play this game to comply with this law? Mm -hmm that we actually make economic decisions that lead to stupid stuff that now the state is trying to reverse from what they did 40 years ago when they basically said, sure, I'll condoize everything. So a couple of things on that. One, you've just proved why blanket suggestions don't work without looking at a local context. So, you know, I'm giving you examples. These are not recommendations. So, so I, just, I asked the editorial to make sure you were thinking of those kinds yes, of things. exactly. Yeah, no, that 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 is a good point. But the other thing is the law is silent on ownership versus um, uh, rent. So if you have a house that's turned into three condominiums, that is uh, three dwelling units on that parcel, it would comply just as much as if it were three front rental units. So, um, so, you know, yes, there is an economic thing where 
say you have a, um, I'm going to make that easy for myself, you have a $900,000 house and you can turn it into three units and um, sell them each for four fifty dollars instead of 300 Yeah, the owner of that, maybe they keep one of those units and they sell the other two. Yes, they've, they've gotten more money. Those units are more expensive than they might have been. It's just a third, but less expensive than the entire house. Is that a good thing for this community or not? That I think that's part of the discussion. But those three units as condo units still count as multi family. But totally to that point, yes. As soon as someone, and this actually came up with a neighbor of ours who wanted to build a separate unit for their parents from Romania to come. Right. Mm -hmm. Now they've moved two years later back to Texas where they started. Mm -hmm. So we would have had two independent housing units in, in our backyard right. in a one acre zoning with two on one mm -hmm. acre. The economic incentive for somebody who can do that is going to be there. And then it will be there for their neighbors because it's like, well, I, I don't live in the nice place. It's not the same thing. I might as well cash in too and go take that extra money <laughs> and go live where I want it, in a place that I wanted to live. That's what I see very easily happening because that certainly is what happened with the multifamily units where you where you used to have stretches of them. But as soon as one gets conduized and somebody goes, oh, I can get that kind of money for this. Why would I sell my two-family unit at the market price for a two-family unit with the rental I get from the extra unit when I can subdivide and sell each one of them at that, you know, in the case you're using four hundred fifty? Why would I sell something for nine hundred thousand when I can sell it for one point two million? We could probably have an hour or two long conversation on this, actually, but I suspect not everybody's going to want to listen to no, it. No, no, yeah, no, no. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's Le just... Leave it as something that we're going to talk about further, but uh, there was an interesting um, statement that you made in the middle of it, which um, I just want to call out because it goes back to the development standards and the design guidelines I mentioned earlier, which is when the second unit comes in, the place isn't as nice anymore. That's not a given. Right is yes, there's going to be another family there, but that gets back to how is that development done? What is the site plan review of that? Is it just jammed in? Is it nicely landscaped? How is the access? How how do the two units work together? How do the two units now um, work with the rest of the neighborhood? Because you have one that was already in the neighborhood. Now you've got a second. How does it work with it? There's a lot that goes into that unit that doesn't necessarily mean it's an automatic, not as nice place to live. And I think that's where community values come in. And that's part of, this is my segue to December 14th, right? That's part of the discussion on December 14th is how does something like this start to work for Medfield and how do we have those discussions together to find a strategy that works for Medfield? Might not work for everybody else and that's why we do localized planning. So, so, excellent point. We want to see if Bill has a question. I don't know if they Oh, yeah. Let me. Yes, let's not forget about the online. Thank you. Great. So, for the people online, um, I have um, a Bill, Chris, Deb, Jean, and Paul. Uh, do any of you guys have a question that you'd like to ask? You can type it in the Q&A um, if you wish, or you can ask it live. I think everyone has the opportunity to talking permitted. Okay. So I don't think there's any questions. Is there? 
Yes, they're long awaited. Oh, perfect. We got two questions. Bill, no question at this time. Perfect. Um, Chris is also all set. Of course. I'm sure it's a map of the major community. Yes. It looked to me like Boston wasn't included. Boston is not included. Yes, they are exempted from the law. They're also exempt from every zoning law that you can think of. They have their own zoning code. Yeah, Boston has its own zoning. Is that just going to be a legislator thing you do? They're just way too old that have less precedent. They are under different rules. They do have a very complicated zoning I did not know that. And uh, we came to Kenny Park, he built in South Boston. Oh, okay, okay. Well, I'm like, that was good, not my choice. <laughs> <laughs> Any questions on this side of the room? Planning board, anything you've got? Not a question, but it's from the from the public is all I didn't say when the greater public which more people come to um I feel like have starting the conversation with how we're addressing the state hospital as a potential compliance mechanism or a part of the compliance strategy is not the entire strategy. Is really important because people are not going to want to hear that there's could be another district with 750 units somewhere else in Medville. We don't really have anywhere else to put it that isn't really impactful. Yes. Uh, so agreed. And um, you all are the ones that get the sort of in-depth guide because as land use or um, the select board or other interested boards, you know, um, knowing how the model works. My guess is most people aren't going to have the patience for an hour and a half long presentation. So yes, we will we will focus. A, I think your point about starting with the state hospital and how that works into the requirements makes a lot of sense. And then we'll focus not that they're not welcome to watch this, and they're certainly welcome to ask questions. Um, at the meeting about uh, any of this, but I feel that this longer presentation probably doesn't work. Well, I think the challenge, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think the challenge, which is why we're all here tonight, is you know, we need to get the citizens to support. Yes. And, and, and the, the hard pull fact is if our tax rate is 17, I'm going to make it a 17.2 right now, and we somebody stands up at the town meeting and says, the hell with this, we're going to do our own thing. Well, then they have to realize that 17.2 might be 38 point something. Because all of that funding that you showed at mm -hmm. the very beginning, we're no longer eligible for. So when roads need to be repaired and certain things need to be done, we're all going to be putting the bill. Mm -hmm. So it, it, that's where the, the state kind of has us over a barrel. Whether people like this or not, we need to comply. So now it's up to everyone in this room to think about how do we do it in the most efficient way so that when we all say yes, because we're going to have to, we do it with our eyes wide open. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's, that's our challenge, right? Mm -hmm. I think I think that's a fair way of uh, thinking about it, um, and it's the what are you saying yes to, and how do we all collectively get there uh, mm -hmm. as a community? Um, even though you are the, the leaders, I think Christine's point too earlier was the state hospital. Um, you know that developments that you've all worked so hard on, from my understanding, being at risk from non-compliance is probably the biggest immediate impact. Mm -hmm. So uh, keeping that in mind is huge. Can you uh, zone and then rezone at some point in time as long as you keep the 
acreage requirements? Um, yeah, you can rezone the area. In fact, I was talking to the community about this. Um, you know, you would just have to go back to HLC and say, hey, we're rezoning our MBTA communities area and or our compliance area. This is what we're doing. And you'd have to recheck the compliance. But yeah, zoning can always be changed. So something else to, to think about. Yes. Um, am I allowed to ask a question? Yeah, of course. Okay. Um, I think to your points about bringing the community on, just being one little person in the community, to understand what the commitment is going to be from us after the 1231 deadline of compliance in terms of when you're going to enact this, because we're, why are we doing this exercise for no point unless the ultimate goal is to eventually be putting this housing together to solve the problem that you originally brought up that you're describing as this big issue, right? I think you need to be fully transparent with the community. I want to know the, that's the one answer I want. Like, when is the game plan after that? And I want it in writing. Like, and when are you expecting the 750 units? And why, if we are only 4,400 homes in the town and the minimum was supposed to be based on 10% of that, which would be 440, are we having to suck it up for the extra 310? It's a, it's a two-part. Okay. Sorry. Last I'm question first. Um, two, it's, a, it's a two-part calculation that I can go back to. But your question about timing was an excellent one. So you have, I mean, your other one was excellent too, but that is, that is a key one that I want to make sure everybody understands is you have to be compliant um, uh, by the end of next December, December 31st, 2024. What that means is that the zoning has to be in place mm -hmm. by December 31st, 2024. Mm -hmm. The schedule that we're currently on is to go to the Maytown meeting. So the zoning would be approved then. It would go to the Attorney General. The Attorney General would review it. Also go to HLC. They would review it. The idea is by going in the spring, everything would be done well before December, 2024. The units... But unit capacity of 750 or whatever you end up with, there's no deadline on when those would be produced. That's up to the private market. It could be so we there's no, there's no, there's no assurance that they actually have that's correct. Just setting up yes. the area that it could be I think it's important to acknowledge that the zoning requires it to be either, right? So yes. if someone if someone presented right. a plan, yes. right. you can't say no. Right. 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 Yeah. That's the that is correct. Stuff. Yeah, but, but what I'm saying and and um uh, this, this is an important part of it, is the town itself is not required to produce those units, right? There is no deadline that says the town has to have 750 units in place by X. It is zoning for the possibility of 750 units. Your point was excellent. It's as of right. So somebody could then come in with an application and say, I'd like to build 10 units. I'd like to build 60 units, whatever. That application, although it's a buy right application, if the town chooses to put site plan review into it, it would then go to the site plan review authority, which I'm assuming would be the planning board. Um, so we'll just assume that for a moment. And there would be a meeting to go through the site plan and then the planning board. Um, pretty impressive. Yeah. Exactly. And so, but. Those units have to go through that process, but there's no deadline that says the units have to be built by a certain time, that all of the units have to be built, that any of the units have to be built. That's why I'm trying to make a difference between zoning and production. Zoning 
is the town's requirement zoning is under the town's control setting up the process by which an application would be reviewed is under the town's control actual creation production of the units not under the town's control they are not responsible for creating those units okay so it's kind of like a new version of a 40 d requirement by the state or a different type of thing. Yeah, it's, it's, it's very different. All it says, so um, say you own a piece of property and it is zoned for a single family house. And I come along, I'm the town all by myself. I come along and say, okay, you can put um, a three family house on here. Do you immediately do that? See, this is what I'm saying. <laughs> so it's up to each individual property owner whether or not they take advantage of that overlay. Some will, some won't. And so that's why I'm saying town doesn't have, there's no deadline by which any of it's up to be. And I'm sorry, I'm talking about the reverse requirement because in the conversation that you just had, you said that we can't put any restrictions on these properties or these 750, right? That is not also being imposed on other single-family homes, no. does it work in reverse? Beautiful question. That is a great question. You can't put it on properties within the same district. So, for example, say you did your overlay district and you allowed multifamily and you allowed mixed use and you allowed commercial. So you had, we could have a three-story office building, a three-story mixed-use building, or a three-story uh, um, multifamily building, right? And you put in your development standards, the multifamily has to be 100% solar ready. Oh, no, 100% solar. has to go on the, um, making something that's expensive for the sake of the argument. 100% solar on the multifamily. The mixed-use and the office building, mm -mm. no, they can just go as of right, no problem. Multifamily alone has to have the solar. That makes the multifamily more expensive to build, less feasible, that is not allowed. If, however, you said the multifamily, the commercial, the mixed use, all have to be solar ready within this district, I believe, I want to check with HLC if you go in that direction, I believe that would be allowed because you're not making a distinction for the multifamily and you are not requiring something that is potentially prohibitively expensive. So that's a difference. Yes. Did you know of anybody still treating? I'm reading. I'm talking about. I've been on a bunch of town committees, including selected for my, most of my life. And um, but I found out somebody told me I couldn't qualify for affordable housing. I worked full time until I was 75. My husband worked part time until he was 80. We own three properties. Um, I have a lot of socks and a lot of safety. We're very safe. Careful. But we, when my husband and I were getting older, we put everything in the kids' names. So it's all in the family trust. So on paper, the only thing I own is my social security. And we had several people all the years I've been on this board that found out that they, exactly they cheated. They, they did one for affordable housing, even though they didn't need it. And that drove me nuts. I can see that it would. I am not an expert on affordable housing other than a very high level of planning. So I can't answer that question. So I don't know the state requirements. Some decent, hardworking people need it. Mm -hmm. I see other people cheating on it. That's awful. Mm -hmm. I, I, I'm watching it nowadays. <coughs> Sorry? I hope so. Yes, ma'am. <coughs> so you have a property. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And it's a large lot. Yeah. So the developer comes in, you know, the person's selling it. If it's a pretty deep, there's restrictions. Mm -hmm. Am I understanding correctly that <coughs> going to this new arrangement, 
No, that is not necessarily correct. So first of all, the property would have to be within the overlay district that the town is going to eventually set off, right? That's part of the discussion. So there's two types of zoning. There's base zone. Every property, pretty much every property has a base zone. Some are single family, some are mixed use zones, some are commercial, some are industrial. Then that zone always applies. Then there's something called an overlay district that sits on top of that base zone. And the overlay district sets up a slightly different set of rules. It says if you are a property owner, you can choose to develop under the base district or under the overlay district. Once you've made that choice, everything you apply for has to be within the district you chose. So if you choose to apply in the base district, your application has to follow those rules. If you choose to apply under the overlay district, your application has to, has to follow those rules. And that's important because that means there are rules for the overlay district. So what will happen in the overlay district is that there will be a um, list of uses that's a, well, first of all, there'll be a district, right? There'll be a boundary that says the properties within this boundary can apply under the overlay district. Then there'll be a set of uses that are allowed. We know multifamily is one of those uses, could be the only use, could be other uses added to it. Again, it depends on what the town wants to do. Then there'll be a set of dimensional standards, so lot size, setbacks, open space requirement building height, building coverage, um, those dimensional standards will govern the, how big, how high, how wide um, that can happen on the lot. Then there can be, that's sort of your absolute base, right? Then there's usually parking requirements. There can be development standards that govern what the site looks like and what the building looks like. There can be design guidelines, uh, which are advisory. Um, and there is a site plan review process which I'm assuming the town will choose the, the most large majority product. Um, so all of those. So it's not just a once this is passed, everything can happen. They can only happen according to the rules that are set in place by the town. It's almost the same thing as the state hospital zoning. It's just the state hospital is not as dense as it would have to be, and we have some age restricting, which you but the construct of the state hospital zoning is a good example of the type of stuff that would be site kind of rule. Dimension regulations, but density. If, if I can add to that too, um, a lot of things that would look developable in paper are not in practice. Um, there's a couple parcels that are like, you know, eight acres, uh, basically open space. You look at a map and you're like, yeah, I can fit eight houses in there, um, depending on lot size. And then you actually look at stormwater, what type of soil do you have? And you actually absorb the kind of rainfall that would shift if you have a bigger house, lot coverage. There's so much that goes into wetlands, even topography, how steep is your house. If it's too steep, then you have to fill. If you fill too much, and there's other issues. So a lot of things, I, I, I get people comments like, I want to put an extra bedroom in my house. That ends up being a three-month process with the Sony board for a single bedroom being added. Uh, so these are the kind of challenges that you get for small things. So for a large development like this to happen, it goes through so much review, even for a buy right use, it goes through so many checks and balances. So, um, and even if you, if I had a, a undeveloped land, it's a single family home, I could not realistically fit 10 units where it used to be a, a single family home with two acres because the site can physically and sustainably take that. 
there's still like that stormwater public health um, traffic where other people parking and you can't just have the whole site being impervious. There needs to be absorption rates. It gets really complicated. So redevelopment or restoning, if we were to pass this tomorrow, you would see results from this maybe in 50 years. Uh -huh. It takes time. Metal is mostly built out then you will be looking at people buying existing land, buying existing buildings, either tearing them down or reusing them, tearing them down. We have a demo delay bylaw. So many more things kick into place. It's a very slow process. It, nothing will happen overnight and everything will happen with the town staying control, with the planning board, sorting board, different boards, affordable housing trust, overseeing everything. So there will be, um, it'll, it'll be a controlled transition. In fact, you mentioned an important point with that that I did not say earlier, which is the town is changing its zoning laws. It's not changing the Conservation Commission's requirements. Both State Wetlands Act stays in place. Mm -hmm. State Title V stays in place. This is just zoning. So to Maria's point, there are actually a lot of other, uh, we talked about uh, public health and um, safety. There are a lot of other regulations that go into building state's building code, for example, all of which absolutely are still in place and still apply. So, um, you know, if you have a, yeah, sorry. But, but they don't have to be considered at the point of time where the new zoning is established. Um, we don't have to ensure that what is going to be zoned in this uh, overlay district has to meet the stormwater requirements correct. or anything that, that is that correct. Nature. Those yeah. are all downstream. That's where the applicant's problem. It has to be developable yeah. land. Yeah. And that's what the states define. They have like, yes. you know, can't have a certain amount of land. Yeah. So this, okay. the state has absolutely defined what they consider to be developable. So we're using their definitions of what's developable to um, show your compliance with uh, the requirements. Um, and that's where the excluded land comes in. If it's excluded, it's not considered to be developable. It's pretty good. It is. That's what we're using. If it's sensitive, it's just signaling to the community that depending on what they do, they may want to have a, a better look at it or a closer look at it. So, and again, I'm happy to show you uh, um, the maps as we better if you crowd around them like that too. But I'm happy to show you what that looks like here. Yeah. So, if there's land running through this developable, developable, it's easy to say. Parcel. <laughs> That is part of you know we're full compliance. Um, these new zoning districts still going to be subject to Chapter 48, Section 10 for variance. Um, yes. I mean they can request the variance. Yeah, if, if they're and then it would be the same requirements. Right. You know it's going to be really complicated for the zoning board is the properties that get in this district that become legally non-conforming and we're have all the Section Six applications. Well, but because it's a but it's an overlay district, so they would they choose. don't opt into it. They're not becoming like non conforming. No, if they're based on these states in place. Yeah. So, so say you put an overlay over a gas station, and the gas station is allowed. Probably don't want to do that, but let's just say you did. The gas station is allowed under the current district. Overlay doesn't change that. It just gives them the option to use the overlay for redevelopment. But otherwise, it stays as a perfectly conforming gas station as long as it's already conforming. Right. It's the advantage, by the way, of using an overlay. It does get messy if a community uses too many overlays, but um, if you're just trying to solve one problem, basically, it is a good advantage because you're not forcing everybody into non-compliance or 
the sections, you know, for all that. I know the town having one overlay, Spring Street mm -hmm. overlay district for multi-housing purposes, I believe. Do we have others? It was never passed. Spring Street is okay. So we don't technically have any. All right. Yeah. It was the it was the affordable housing But like can you have properties that have an overlay and then another overlay? You can, yeah. Well that's a slut zone wetlands, um yeah. Um what's the other one? Yeah, watershed, aquifer, so so many I'm thinking of the work we've done I did work with mixed use. Like thinking of that, yeah, targeting that, and thinking the same. I think that theory that work began before the community's thing was like reality. So I think some of Ted's work will get incorporated into your community bylaw rather than have a separate. Yeah, I'd certainly be interested in seeing that. There's something that we can use. And there's some that you might, some of what he did was applicable to areas where you wouldn't want high density. Mm -hmm. um, so you might have other areas where you could be what he drafted. Yeah. And some of the like, you would have, uh, <coughs> um, what's the district that the big cross? The RS? Yeah. Um, I don't know. The same part of the No, that's urban. There's a, there's a kind of one in there, so. And, and yeah, oh my gosh, you might have it here. So that that would be great if we if you're willing to share that the work that we've already done. Yeah, yeah I'd love to take a look at that. R E residential R. estate. Yeah. 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 What's the R E? Residential estate. Um, that's not just big, big, big. Yeah. Can you tell me like what the deadline is that the state's wanting communities to comply by, or like what's the fine? Like no fine. So December thirty first, twenty twenty four, for you. Um, uh, as a as an adjacent community, there is no fine. Nobody's mentioned a fine, but you do lose access to the grants, which okay. depending on the community and the AG starts paying a lot of attention to you. So yeah, I guess, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I know there's still all the question, but in all honesty, and, and we we're not operating to to, to this, but. That could 2024 give up to 2025 because people are trying, but they're just not there yet. So it's like, I know we have to, the line in the sand is 2024 right now. Right. But in the back of my mind, I'm like, okay, continue to play this game and then push it another year, push it another six months. People, you know, have, they're trying to get into their town meetings. That could be a challenge. So I would say look to the rapid transit communities um, to see what they do about that because, okay. of course, their deadline is coming up. Yeah, they're well, rapidly. They're being held to it. Yeah. However, let's just say for the moment that the zoning didn't go through in the spring. Let's say you go to a fall town meeting. I know none of us want to do this because it's nice to have the zoning done once, but just use it as an example. You could Actually, you know, I don't want to, I don't even want to push that. I'd say, <laughs> I, I'd say that your best bet is to get, because the AG has to review it, because yeah. HLC has to review it. If you want to be absolutely sure, because you've got huge things riding on it, yeah. May is, is a really good time. So, just so you know, it's already on my calendar. And you just put it on the slide. <laughs> it's actually literally on my calendar, so I know what's coming on. So, yeah. Another crystal ball question. It may not be fair. 
I'm coming out of this meeting not really sure whether we're facing a big issue mm -hmm. or a little issue. Right. If we're going to be talking about a zoning bylaw in May at the town meeting, I'm trying to figure out, and I don't know if you can answer this question, at what point in time will we know enough about what is and isn't possible to where when we're thinking about the zoning bylaw in May, we have a context for whether it's a big issue or a little issue? It would have to be fairly soon because so, we have we have to you know where we're know where we're going to apply right. it right? right. We have to know what it's going to be. The planning board you know select you need to have it on your warrant. Planning board's got to have their mm -hmm. public hearings, so we're going to be knowing well before then. We're waiting on the state. We're waiting on the state. I think our our plan has been very early that we're going to basically be on a parallel track. So. Yeah. Best case scenario for all of us, I think we put it on the board, we get to town meeting, and we say, just consult. Um, we've been able to get full compliance with the Green Hospital project. Um, but we have to be going with two plans because we have to meet the well, for We also would need you and then the state hospital morning think we might need to do the work. So we might have an amendment to the state hospital, yeah. even if yeah. it does work. Mm -hmm. And if it doesn't work, yes. it's totally different. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so, so it's like a three-part track. following two tracks and we're hoping to not have to lose our other areas. It's within my own control. Yeah, so what makes me uncomfortable about that is plan A is the state hospital covers some significant chunk of the requirement, and we have a little issue. But if we can't get that, we also have plan B, which will be up for a vote in May, which means we've figured out plan B. Yeah. And that sounds, if that's the big issue one, I'm not, I'm skeptical. I'm not sure how we do it by parallel track because plan A, and because of a whole bunch of other issues, is its own big issue. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. Trying to come up with a hypothetical plan B that we will just default to if somebody says no, I, I see that being problematic. Well, and I understand it's going to be awkward. Just assume for a second that the state hospital doesn't work because right. it's easier if it doesn't work. Right. But for the plant, for everyone to select a 50 acre yeah. assemblage of land for the planning board to draft a bylaw and do the outreach necessary to get people to say yes, which is not that 100% in the past. Right. I think May is wildly unknown. That, that's my point. Can we do a special town meeting in the fall? Well, you can. I think what Emily was saying is if you do it in the fall and it goes to the attorney general who doesn't approve it and HLC says no, then we run the risk of falling out of compliance and not being eligible for assets. I think as long as it's in front of them, you're considered with them compliance. Your problem is going to be if they say no. Right. That that's the part that I'm worried about. If you if you turn it in and the AG is still reviewing it as of December 31st, HLC is reviewing it as of December 31st. My understanding is you're still in compliance. That's what I heard. Because the next round of master's funding will be next fall. Exactly. So this is yeah. know, part, part of what concerns me. I mean, some of your comments have been sort of assuming, well, communities want to do this thing that the state is forcing them to do. And I'm saying we already we already embraced the 40B. And if the state hospital project goes through, we're not 10% compliant with 40B. We're 17 or so percent really? compliant yeah. with 40B. Yeah. That's by itself. 700 units. Mm -hmm. 
So when we sit there and say, and now we want you another 50 acres, it, like this is a fundamental definition of the town that we're dealing with. I appreciate the, the state can sue us and I appreciate the state can dangle funds that they won't give us. I'm sitting there saying, if they say no, I begin to question the wisdom of the entire, not, don't quote <laughs> I begin to I begin to question the wisdom of us putting in 330 40B compliant, 25% 40B compliant units at the state hospital to get to 17% of affordable housing at the time that the state potentially is putting us into a box of having to zone things that we don't want zoned the way that it has to be zoned to comply with a law. And if the threat is, well, then we won't give you the mass works funding, then okay, you're destroying, you're already making this argument, so I'm yeah. not actually, yeah. I'm, not, I'm not going so far. Well, but I mean, but somewhere somebody should count units. Yeah. And that's, and I'm, and I'm not even arguing that point, I'm trying right. to figure out the sequencing of, of votes. Yes. And, and I think Sarah's right, trying to have those two votes ready in May, is problematic, and if we have to go that route, I think the fall is going to be a real nasty planning period. I will give you some relief, which is part of my job, if I remember correctly, is to help draft that zoning. Right. So yeah. it's not all on your no, job. But, but yeah, so but you have to have the public hearings. We yeah. have to have a back and forth. Absolutely, it takes time. So, so what is your timetable then? Given all that for me, me. right? Exactly. So um, I had I had the very highest of. So we're going to have the public meeting in December. Yeah. Oh yeah. Okay. I could have done it. That's fine. I, think I, I don't think I did the full detail for this one because it was getting too much. So community input on December fourteenth. Uh, I'll be working on the draft bylaw to start off with. Help better if we had a geographic area. Um, so we need to talk about that, Maria. Just saying, put a put a note. Yeah. <laughs> Um, on how we want to do that community input into the bylaw. And that's probably going to be the general fair. I mean, obviously, I can start with the sample bylaw. Anything you all have already done, we can start putting those pieces together, rough out what it looks like, have a conversation with the community on December 14th. Then we will be doing, I hadn't talked to you yet about your process for when you have the warrant close, but when we need to get things in. So we need to rough that in. And then I back off from that. So it's be January. Yeah. So we have to have the list of it done, and it goes out to print. I think last time it was the week before town meeting, but that's kind of. I would rather have it ready before. Yeah. <laughs> so 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 we have some we have some technical issues to yes. discuss, like yeah. whether or not you allow placeholders in the warrant. How close to printing? Do you do handouts at town meeting? All of the bad practices that we try, <laughs> all of the bad practices that every community does, especially for zoning. So that's just how zoning works sometimes. So yeah, we'll firm up the schedule. We'll talk to to you all to get a sense of your schedule because um, I'm sure this isn't the only thing on your plate. Um, we'll also talk to you, the select board, about your schedule and you know where, when, and uh, how you want updates on that. Um, but the idea is to get the community input and then really put the language together so we can move into the hearing processes as soon as possible. So, so on the uh, compliance issue, the lawyer really keeps looking at the guidelines to the storage. Yes. Um, but the definition on determination of compliance means the determination by EOHLC as to whether the community has a multifamily zoning district that complies. The requirements of 3A and determination of compliance 
may be determination of interim compliance. Yes. Yeah. So we have that now. Yeah. Yeah, you've met you've met the first step of filing your action plan. Yeah. So you I mean, arguably. Yeah. I guess we have to look at interim compliance. And that could be you are interim compliance, but you have to have another town meeting to fix X. Um, it could it would be, be if it's not total compliance by December exactly. 31st. Yeah. Doesn't look to be an absolute problem. So what we need to do, obviously, is as we know our timeline, if there's any shift to that timeline, then talk to HLC about the implications of that from their perspective. So well before town meeting has to make a decision that would actually not create a possibility of a timeline problem for the next reality. So yes. What happens if we have a, we have the article mm -hmm. and it gets voted down? Are we in compliance? Because we did everything the state said. No, no, if you don't have the zoning, you are not in compliance. We actually did a couple of weeks ago that said no. Yeah. It was very so basically it's the voters that are being held hostage here. It is. You either vote for it or you're not in compliance. It is your town meeting that has to vote for it. Yes. But as with any by the way, as with any meaningless because it's the state dictating this Well, they're dictating that you have to have the zoning district or not, and that it has to meet certain requirements. They're not dictating, especially in your case, because you're in the J-Stamp, they're not dictating where, they're not dictating the um, parameters within it beyond those that demonstrate from the last. Yes. That's why I like local, local government. <laughs> <laughs> um, and we do have that, like um, Emily mentioned, a December 14th info session yes. for the public specifically. We're going to be um, advertising in the newspaper. I'm going to be posting flyers in town hall, the rec center, um, the center, the library, our website. Um, I'm going to be mentioning I never call it a meeting again. <laughs> right here, I get into the plug. Uh, we have the website. So my goal is to have one or two public workshops uh, with Emily. And then through the planning board, I want to keep updating this. And we are required to have, I believe, at least two meetings. Um, two public hearings to the planning board before this. So there'll be at least four opportunities for the public to participate and get informed. As long as, uh, you know, along with my bi-weekly updates through every board I can get a platform on. So I, I hope um, we can get the word out. People can get involved early, as early as we can make it. I know it's just a bit of a tight deadline, but the state has imposed a bit of a tight deadline. So we're going to try to make the best of it and if you want to help spread the word, please do. I'll, I'll send out all the materials I have. Oh, thank you, Eileen. So we have a Q&A. Okay. Bill Massaro says, my understanding of the MSH land disposition agreement is projected sale March 2024. It also includes options for extensions if town-owned land is excluded. That is the fallback if the transaction is extended before December 2024. You can override this one because you are in the active yeah. right, process of disposing of this land for housing. You can put an override in the model. So we, we can model it for compliance. So will the map you mentioned up there, will that be on the website so citizens can kind of see what yeah, we're we on? The map. I mean, that yeah, right there, I think, will draw attention. Yeah. We're going to do people yeah. that are going to be near that spot that we're going to want to learn what can happen in their backyard. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, we should probably, uh, I should probably modify it and resend it just so that we know great. that those are test districts. They're not actual districts that yes. anybody has decided on. So let me put that caveat on it and then yeah, we can do it. I don't want anybody saying, oh my God, they've already decided. So um, you know. Emily, are there two maps? One that 
includes the state hospital approved and another picture without her. This is just the map that shows the land areas. So I'm oh. going to hold it up and then you can come up and have a look at it. So it is our entire town. The dark green is excluded land. The slightly lighter green is the excluded land with the sensitive land overlaid on top of it. The blue is your sensitive land. Remember that can still be modeled. Um, State Hospital up here, and we looked just for test purposes as these at these two yellow areas here. So you can have a look at that. Um, that would be the downtown and uh, a, a tiny, I think, five-acre district along Route 109. Yes. Yeah. As uh, tax district again, but there are areas that have uh, a little less residential. Mm -hmm. And as test districts, how big are they? You said just said five acres was one. One's yes. a little we, over five. The other one we, is they don't have to downtown. Yeah, exactly. Forty-five for downtown, five oh. for the other. Okay. Yeah, right. yeah. So like yeah. the property. Uh, I think we talked about this in twenty years ago. Going to move with Sarah is um like that property at some point potentially could change hands. So that's something in theory we could do an overlay on that, even though it's not for sale today. Mm -hmm. That could yeah. yeah. Okay. It's part of the overlay shot. Overlay, you could over Shaw's the the other center next to it, the offices, the commercial offices right behind it. I don't know how large that is. What's that look like? Offices, you know, um, some communities. My understanding is that some communities are looking at them with the office market. Some way boring all that is. Is that the industrial center? So you can't do that. Uh, we can. We have a separate workshop December 4th to decide yeah. the destiny of the industrial extended district. So that could absolutely be what, something we just thought. Well, we'll land your own circle around things like the park or uh, five acre parcels around these highly developed, mm -hmm. therefore economically unlikely to be developed as multifamily. Um, Shaw's Plaza, Montrose School, okay. maybe some of the downtown. Yeah, we can look at a strategy that looks at uh, those. Um, we have a long-term lease on letting down the lease on town land. Does that qualify as privately owned then? I don't know the answer to that, actually. I'm not sure that it does. Um, I think it's devious, and I could yeah, think, I I think 50 acres of town yeah. land and, and, and beat it to Gus. <laughs> he's never going to do anything with it. I believe it has to be, uh, you know, if it's owned by the town, unless it is in active use or about to be active use for uh, housing. Well, that would be good. Yes. But, um, there'd be a contract that says that. It's the recipient can't do anything with it. Ah, now, see, you have just gotten to part of the original problem with the state hospital, which is the town is disposing of the land. In theory, it is zoned for 750 units, right? It's all about zoning. But you have an LDA that says, hey, you can't build the full amount. You can build less than the full amount. That is a problem. So to replicate that, if you dispose of your 50 acres to Gus, with an agreement that said, by the way, this is a for You are just simply replicating that exact same problem. So, so it's a good illustrative yeah. for anybody who's watching, illustrative example of why that doesn't work. So, everybody's getting too creative. So, I think we're done. <laughs>
Thank you, Christine. I'm happy. I'm happy to uh, talk about the map if people want to come up, but I think the report is part of a. Yes, we do need to close the public oh. meeting component from the planning board on the platform. Well, so you have votes to adjourn. We want to. They want to keep going. We keep talking. Okay, perfect. Okay. A couple questions about the map. As long as the board doesn't leave the room. What's our next commitment as a group? December 14th. That's it. For this. Yeah. Is it? And so affordable housing trust really won't be dealing with this at all. It's on the planning board. It's on the big proposed planning by No, I think that will mostly fall on planning board, but it'll obviously I can let you know. So if you want to participate in that. Sorry to interrupt. I just want to make sure that. Um, yes. Oh, let me let me. Yes. You're still doing a really good job. Oh, thank you. I think they were just telling you that. Thank you. I really appreciate that. No, thank but I think something that. Oh, sorry.